Welcome, friends, to the Getting Mental podcast. I'm recording this post-episode with Kiret Randawa. It was an incredible episode. We spoke about all things boundaries, compassion, and how Buddhist teachings or Buddhist philosophy can guide us to right action and remove suffering from our life. Now, Kiret has studied at Columbia University and the Nandala Institute. She is well-versed in these topics. She's also a practitioner, or I guess you could say a meditation teacher, for Allo Moves, which is where I found her originally. Some of the most beautiful meditations and has really created a shift in my own life. So I wanted to share her and her lessons with you and with the world. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please give it a listen and a share, follow, all that jazz. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. So doing the whole podcasting thing, you're my 12th, 12th guest. And, you know, I'm at the beginner's phase, realistically speaking, you know, like once you get up to the, the 50, 60, 70 mark, that's like, okay, you're getting there. But as far as podcasting goes, I'm kind of at the beginning stage. And when we last spoke, I was, you know, like even, even my friends, sometimes I'll get a bit nervous, but just people in general feel nervous. And the way that I'll deal with that is by, you know, structuring everything out, like, introduction here and then introduction here and then these questions planned but what that actually does is it removes the the possibility for actually a real conversation right it's like who cares if you're nervous and who cares if you feel like, disorientated it's completely fine so that structure and that kind of way of going about it that shifted after the realization of of the call we had you know there's so many things that they didn't go wrong but you know just the internet connection i thought to myself you know like where, where am I, what am I missing here? You know, like not just from like the technological standpoint, but also just inside myself. So that whole thing was a, a huge revelation for me and how just to scale it back and just have a conversation. Mm, I, I really like that. I resonate with that deeply. I think that it's uh, the addition of the structure and, you know, even like seeing the microphone. I think when we create a production like feel then we begin to feel like we're in a production so yes that can counter the sort of conversational flow but one thing i will say even from speaking to you really briefly last time you have a really um charismatic but also there's an ease about your presence which i probably think makes you feel really comfortable because sometimes as a host that's not always there right so it's mm-hmm. it's i feel like as a host it's not just a skill, but it's also an art form. Like it's a personality trait and it's a way that you hold space. And we only spoke for maybe 15, 10, 15 minutes last time at most. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this. So thank you. No, oh, and thanks for coming on. It was just more <laughs> with the conversation, just, and this is just a topic in general, which we can expand on, but just in conversations in general, like I might've seemed at ease, but it's that kind of that nervousness underneath, which, doesn't always make it enjoyable for for me you know like and and just now even coming into this and just feeling renewed and I did an episode uh, two episodes since and I just feel so much more calmer and relaxed and I think it comes from this idea of and, and I wanted to expand this with you this idea of you know for me I'm, I'm 27 right and I grew up in uh, quite I guess you could say almost like a little bit of a volatile environment and sorry to my parents if you're listening but that's just the way it was and it was like a, how would you put it? Like my, my, I never knew what state my dad would be in or my mum would be in. So it was always this kind of feeling of 
like what's going to be next? And you know, the way that I found certainty as a kid was to to create structure and to outsource my internal feelings of being scared, you know, being a man as well and suppressing that in some ways, outsourcing that to, you know, external structures. And then the way that manifested as, and I know it sounds, I'm making a huge deal of the situation, but the way that manifested in, in my, my life and my practices is by trying to create all these structures that puts me out of flow and out of the present moment. And a kind of extension of that as well was, you know, with personal development, quote unquote, you know, like Tony Robbins, who I admire and I think he's a great guy. And but just him as an example, not him personally, but as an example of, you know, having to be in state or getting yourself in state and having to be X or Y way or get yourself in a certain emotional way of being. That was kind of like a safe haven for me. But then now it's kind of turned on me and, you know, God, life, what do you want to call it, is telling me now that I need to just see what happens, feel the emotions, and, and go through the emotions. I think that that's so beautifully articulated. You know, it's so helpful to see when certain patterns become outdated. I think that's one of the best skills we can have is to recognize the initial protective function of certain tendencies of like, wow, this really served me really well for a large part of my life. But now I'm realizing that it's actually causing me pain if I continue to act in this way. So what once was maybe providing me with the safety and security I needed is now actually inhibiting me from really engaging with life more fully. I can, I can really resonate with that. I've had a very similar experience of um, finding safety and a lot of control and structure and routine. And for me, I'm not someone who struggles with discipline, honestly, in many regards, but someone tells me to just let things go and to relax and have no structure. And I feel completely lost, you know, like what Same. to do with all that space. So I, I can, I can sense that. Yeah. And I, I feel as well, you know, it's when it comes to discipline and, and structuring everything, you know, I was actually writing about this this morning, ironically, you know, discipline is a word that's used in Western culture and I say Western culture because we're, you know, kind of both in it, but it might be used in other ways as well. But in Western culture, you hear the word discipline. And what that means to me, what that symbolizes is that, you know, I don't want to do this thing or that thing or whatever it is outside of me. And what I ought to do is push myself into that and push myself into, I'm going to the gym, have some discipline, you know, just push yourself to go to the gym. But where that, you know, the, the potential downside of that is that discipline sometimes removes discovery, right? And discovery is the phase where you step into something and you're like, hey, I don't like this. What part of my life is misaligned to this? Or, you know, what what is it that I don't like about this? And I, I use the example in one of my posts that I'm doing tonight. And it says <clears throat> that, um, you know, say, for example, you're a female and you go in the gym. And you're like, I don't like going to the gym, but I don't want to go to the gym. And you're like, I need to be more disciplined. What if it's you don't like training around men? You know, or what if it's you you don't actually like the gym? You don't want to you don't want to put on, you know, you don't want to look toned. You just want to move better. You know, all these variables about who you want to be it can't be simplified to to being more disciplined. Mm -hmm. So in this post that I was doing, which we can expand on here as well, I think it's you know we should definitely be disciplined in some ways, but also recognize that resistance is a call to discovery and it's a call 
to unveil the stuff that was previously veiled. Mm, wow, so well said. I love that resistance to the call to discovery. I think that's that's really beautiful. And I think that what you're inviting people to do is to honor every experience they're having is really valuable feedback. If there is some natural resistance there, okay, so what else is happening? You know, when we yes. remain curious and open, we remain receptive to the entire scope of possibility. But when we feel like we already think we know everything, that sort of righteous attitude of reducing it down to a quality or repeating something that we've heard elsewhere, it's not only sometimes harmful, but it's incredibly limiting because then we only know ourselves to the extent in which we have allowed society to reflect that back to us. So in most societies and cultures today, that's not very deep at all. So we often have to do more of the groundwork to really know ourselves more intimately. And that does entail navigating those uncomfortable arenas of what is it that is happening in this moment? What is this bringing up for me? What is it that feels threatened when I step into this environment, this space, this habit? So I appreciate you mentioning that. And that's what I loved about your meditations. So for those who are listening, uh, LO Moves, you do meditations on there and you do one-on-one -on -one coaching and various things as well. In your meditations, what I absolutely loved, and it's the reason I reached out to you, quite frankly, you... So there, there's a certain feeling that I got when I was when I sat in meditation with the, the meditations you did on Allo Moves, and it was a feeling of there was no pressure to do or be or to breathe a certain way or to to think a certain way, like to see your, your, your thoughts this way, I'll see your thoughts this way. It was an openness to experience, an openness to set the foundations of, I guess you could say, the day for me it was. And... You know, I've been meditating for since 2012, end of 2012, I think it was. So what is that, nine years or something? And that those meditations there, they were different, right? I've done lots of meditations. And so that, that principle of, you know, discovery, I feel is in, inherent in your meditations. So I really feel like that that's something that, you know, if someone's going to do meditation and someone's going to start a practice of meditation, to, to, I mean, firstly, check out yours, but also realize that you don't need to step into a space of a certain way of being, you know, and you can tell me more about this than what I could tell you, but it just feels, you know, for, for my journey of meditation, the first three or four years and mindfulness in general was a journey of, you know, feeling that I had to show up a certain way in meditation so I get a certain result, so I therefore get the life that I want. Mm. But what it really is is introspection, right? Yeah, I think, I think that what you're saying and what I feel very strongly about is that meditation is a tether to reality. It's not about constructing some fantasy world. Honestly, it's not about transcending this life to be elsewhere. Enlightenment is a state of mind, and it means it, it offers you a radical new relationship to everything else around you, and that's the key right there. It's not that. It's not that an enlightened mind is a mind that doesn't experience X, Y, Z, but it's a mind that knows how to be in right relationship to everything that arises. So what we start to see in that process is that regardless of the content of my experience, regardless of what might be present in this moment, 
I can still show up and I can engage and I can experience a deeper kind of spaciousness. And that's the practice right there. It's a radical confrontation with the truth of what's happening right now. It's not some escape elsewhere. We can try to do that, but I think very quickly, unfortunately, we'll learn that it's not sustainable, nor do I feel like it's truly medicinal in the way that so many of us are, are seeking. Yeah, that is so powerful. You know, like the truth is what's going to set us free. You know, that's a cliche saying, and I don't just mean truth in the moment of what is, you know, like the future is a projection of, you know, an idea of what we think it's going to be. The past is an interpretation of what we think it is. And, you know, truth in this moment is what meditation is. And to expand on that truth in words and truth in, in how you feel is also the same thing as, as a meditation practice because it's aligning you with reality, right? You know, and that's this is what made me think about resistance, the, the, the feeling of resistance. It's like we use different mechanisms to, to avoid uh, the feelings of resistance. And, you know, obviously those mechanisms lead towards what we believe about the world in some ways, in some ways not maybe, but... What, where that leaves us is reasons for those resistance, feelings of resistance that makes resistance not actually conducive, if that makes sense. Like I said before, it's about discovery. So if we can understand that, uh, that, that when we feel something, it's not about putting a label on it or making it X, Y, Z. It's about exploring that feeling. It's like, why do I feel resistant? Why am I scared of this? Why, what makes me nervous about this? It's like, well, we can unpack that. We can go through it, but we need to first align with the truth. So I, I, I'm on, on board with that entirely, and I think the present moment is the the gateway to truth. Definitely, you know, I think that so many of us arrive at meditation practice and into a community with the intention to cultivate a new way of being and a new sequence of habits. And I think that that's A, very normal and B, very healthy to continue growing and evolving. Of course, we have goals and aspirations. And in fact, the aspiration is an essential part of, of being present and cultivating a strong practice. But I also think that we start to realize that the key to really attaining any of the goals that we have is to release the need to be in conflict with what's happening right now. So it's it's sort of an ironic experience because we arrive at the practice with an intention, but the practice entails releasing any expectation of what's supposed to happen or what mm. we're supposed to be like. But it's only at that precise moment of releasing expectation of genuinely being receptive to what is here right now that we actually start to sense and settle into more deeply the aspiration for being here. And, you know, it's, it's an experience like so many in the healing world that it's difficult to conceptualize. You know, scholars, teachers, philosophers, mystics have done this for thousands of years and I think have done an excellent job of doing that because so many of us can speak about this and debate about this. But there's some aspect of the experience that I think is inherently experiential. It's when you've sat on the cushion. It's when you've been confronted with the darkness within you. It's when you've had to sit through those days that just really don't feel good, that you really start to tap into something 
far more significant and far more deep than can't otherwise be communicated or known, I think. Yeah, and that hits home. You know, there's advice and, and uh, you know, giving people advice or tips to improve, you know, it's kind of in itself, it's hard to put in words, but it's kind of in, its, in itself uh, turns on its head because advice is only contextual, right? The, the feeling of an experience, the expression of a conversation, the energy that this will leave to people, uh, as an example, this conversation can't be encapsulated in words. It's, it's a feeling. It's like, you know, and people think, science thinks that it's, you know, that we can quantify, and maybe we can, maybe I, we haven't discovered it yet, that we can quantify the intangible and make it something to measure. You can't measure the impact, at least that I know of, of a conversation. And for so long in my, in my own personal life, you know, there was this uh, rigidness around it had to be science. You know, there had to be proof of it. You know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it in an educated, scientific way. And my experience of, of the last, you know, few months and just this whole COVID thing and, and the way things have gone you know, both good and bad is that so much of our life is chance and so much of what we do and how we can approach things is unscientific. Intuition, for example, you know, the act of intuition is so uh, ethereal. you know, it's like I'm going to, I have a feeling about this, it just doesn't feel right to me and the choices that I make, doesn't fi- this doesn't feel right to me. And then, you know, the government or <laughs> we have to go into it will say, you know, you, sh- you have to do this because the science is safe. We're going to make policy based on science. But at the same time, if something doesn't feel right to you, and of course you can still question the feeling, right? You can still question and say, hey, it's just coming from the incorrect place. But the feeling is there for exploration as well. And the feeling has its use. So just touching on what you said there about, you know, experiential uh, learning and, you know, it's not so much science, which has its place as well. And I'm not dissing science. I'm just saying there needs to be a balance. And for those listening who are kind of in between the two worlds of like, you know, have this funny feeling about something. And I know I ought not to take this job or that job, whatever. But, you know, like the science, which, you know, is a process. It's not, it's not you know, this or that or the other. It's a process of understanding something. says that I should do it. You know, that there's a conflict there. Um, so that's, I definitely agree with that, with, with uh, experiential uh, learning and growth. Yeah, you know, I think that, one thing that sometimes people can forget is that no matter what belief you hold or what tradition you belong to, whether it is a scientific lineage or a spiritual or religious lineage or or both, every viewpoint within that viewpoint holds a set of assumptions that will inform the way you see the world around you. Your perception is not free from assumption. So whether it's a set of scientific assumptions or a set of religious assumptions, we're all meeting the moment with a set of assumptions. And that's important to recognize because we don't experience direct perception of reality. And if we did, that is the meditative state right there. Is that enlightenment? It's in a way, yes, it's being able to really sense into the truth of what's happening here and now. And that goes a little bit beyond identifying what's happening in our experience into something a little bit more religious and spiritual. So 
the, the best way that I can really explain this, which I also think is a more relatable way, is if anyone has ever done a psychedelic or had an experience on a psychedelic substance, there is something intangibly true about that experience of feeling connected to some other intelligence. And that cannot be disputed, but it's truly known. And one can relax into that space with, with certainty in the moment of like, no, I am connected to so much more than what I usually allow myself to feel or what is available to my perception. So meditation, for instance, and, and meditation is like the word sport. There are so many practices and so <laughs> many different goals. Like yeah. playing football isn't the same thing as playing basketball. They're completely different games with completely different aims. So we, you know, we should definitely be more nuanced about the word meditation, but more often than not, most practices aim at perceiving this kind of deep insight and really understanding the truth of what's happening. So whether we're scientists or whether we're mystics or whether we're philosophers, we all have this inclination to know something true and to know something certain about that truth, to find stability in that. So I think what is really healthy for anybody who might find themselves being turned off by another lineage is recognizing that they're doing the same thing you're doing with just a different set of assumptions. Yes. You know, I think this also has great implications for political parties, you know, living in the U S now, it's never been this hostile. Um, I've with, seen. Yeah. Especially with, in New York. Yeah. It's really challenging depending on the affiliation that you have. And one thing that I think people really lose sight of is that actually we're really not that different. We're protecting probably exactly the same. Exactly. And I think if we can start to really see that, sure, the content might be different. The belief might be different, but the fundamental desire or the fundamental inclination to want to be a part of something or to protect one's family is very much the same. So I think that it's when we are in discussion around scientific benefits and philosophical benefits and mystical benefits, I think it's always helpful to keep in mind that they all offer tremendous value, but they're looking at the same practice tool reality through a completely different lens. So they just won't mm. yield the results. The question that comes up for me is how do we remove bias then? You know, like if you, let's say for example, we, we have a uh, ut uh, utopic kind of political system uh, we don't have to go on this if you don't want to, but, you know, we say we have the science, right, and we have people offering advice, and then we, you know, the, the government says, hey, we want a more, you know, spiritual, philosophical, even separately those two approach to this um, particular problem or way of governing, and then we, we do that. We have those, you know, three parties of those people. You, you can add a fourth, fifth, you can put whatever category you want in there, different people to speak for different opinions. What, you know, but inherent inside those opinions is is a bias. You know, science has biases. People think that science is unbiased. You can find evidence for what you want, confirmation bias. Um, spirituality has bias. You know, people can say that they, uh, you know, that they're in, they're enlightened and they have the truth. It's like, well, that's just an opinion of you, and then and so forth. I mean, what do we do then? How can we create a system and uh, a place in where you know bias doesn't exist? You know, I think that's an interesting question and my response might not be super satisfying because I don't know 
if the goal is to create a system that is free from bias rather than a conversation that inherently recognizes bias in all things. I think that there's, there's something really freeing in understanding that this is how the brain works and we can study the brain and we have studied the brain, but there is so much about the brain that we don't know. There is so much about the mind that we don't know, which is far beyond the measurable scope of the brain. So, And consciousness think, as well. Like, I, I mean, consciousness is like, we haven't even scratched the surface. There isn't even a single unified definition as to what constitutes consciousness. So I think but I, but just like what you were saying, I think that's a beautiful threshold to be at because that point, that meeting ground, only discovery can come from there. It's only, there's only room for discovery and potential. And if we can continue making that our new resting place in every conversation, every dialogue and every practice and every meeting in knowing that there is only potential to exist, then it's a much more freeing way of living in the world than trying to be right trying to be certain or trying to be free from our own assumptions because I don't know, I don't know if that's possible. And I also say this even in, even in a tradition that very much has offered a pathway to enlightenment, which is Buddhism, I also don't know that the Buddhist enlightened state is free from assumption. I think that the Buddhist enlightened state is very much influenced by the Buddhist doctrine of what the enlightened state is. I think and so I think, as well. I think the Christian mystic enlightened state is very much influenced by their doctrine. And the same thing with the Sufis. I, I don't know if any of these states are actually free from what it is that we claim to be free from. And, and I can only speak conceptually because I'm not enlightened um, and very, 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 very far from it. Uh, but, but I think that it's worth considering that all of these assumptions that we have are very much informing everything we do in the world that we inhabit. So I don't know if it's possible to be free from it and i don't know if it's necessary to be free from it i just think we just ought to recognize what's happening that's beautifully put it's almost like you know then there's a set of principles that you know for us to live um in a coherent state or not even coherent but more in a uh, friendly state let's say for lack of better words we need to have a set of principles that we all are guided by you know, hence probably why there's a constitution of some sort. Um, in regards to enlightenment, you know, again, I think the same thing as well. And I, I put down the list of questions that I was going to ask you, you know, the, the state of enlightenment is a tricky one. You know, the thing that came up for me in my mind when you were saying, or wherever it was, if we're talking about mind, how we don't know it, came up somewhere for me, um, is that, you know, enlightenment is, we're all enlightened in our own way, if that makes sense. You know, if you look at the reflection, you get a, a diamond, right, and you you look at the reflection of a diamond and it splatters out different rainbows and colors in different directions. You know, we're, we're a slice of that diamond in the sense that we reflect our own kind of sense of enlightenment, you know, which is just a construct of a word. But to me, what it really means is, uh, you know, you've thought or reflected about something and you have a certain depth about something. And depth can also be lack of depth. I know it sounds so confusing. Um, but really what I'm saying is that the, the word enlightenment is so... And I, and I see this so much, you know, in the spiritual community. People 
are infatuated with the idea of enlightenment and that they ought to just brush things to the side because it's the enlightened way. It's like no suffering. Like if I'm feeling suffering, that means I'm not enlightened. And that's a, that's a bit of a qualm that I have with, you know, people's interpretation of the Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, I, you know, Buddhism is in, I think, in the, in popular culture, it's just completely misunderstood. Um, I don't, I don't know any system of thought that doesn't utilize one's full spectrum of emotion as a way of experience and connection and interconnectedness and transcendental qualities. You just couldn't have a framework without that because so much of what it means to be human entails suffering and entails darkness and entails whatever it is that is uncomfortable. And the, the Buddhist framework around suffering is a that you know the first thing that the buddha said is that the way that we perceive life is suffering a lot of people perceive this to be life is inherently suffering that's not exactly what i think he was trying to say and what a lot of people don't think he was trying to say but more of that the way that we experience life is suffering the way that we grasp the way that we reject the way that we blame the way that we project we have a sort of set of tendencies that all of us inhabit as we move throughout the world. We fear, we grasp, we, we cling on to things as a way of maintaining safety, and we live in delusion as a way of protecting ourselves. And as long as we're in this delusion, there's one thing guaranteed in that suffering. But he continued to, to teach, and he mentioned following this, that there is a cause to suffering. So, Suffering exists, yes, but there is a very formulaic cause to why it is that you're suffering, which then means that there is an end to suffering. There is an end to what it is that you're experiencing to be suffering. And then the last of the, the main teaching he shared, which was the Four Noble Truths, is the Eightfold Path, which is his prescribed methodology for reducing and essentially completely diminishing suffering. And this includes things like right mindfulness, right livelihood, right speech. So it's ways of being in the world, ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of moving, ways of communicating that reduce suffering and cultivate wholesome states of mind. So it's a very formulaic way of living in the world. But the experience that you were mentioning just a few moments ago of diminishing suffering and saying this is not, to, you know, this is not, similar to an enlightened state. This is not what it means to be spiritual. It's just spiritual bypassing. It's misguided. It's dangerous. And sooner or later, they'll realize that it's unsustainable because you'll keep feeling this way because this is what it means to be human. You can't be untouched by grief and loss and old age and sickness. This is just what it means to be human. And the sooner that we can realize and accept that, the sooner that like we were saying before, release the need to fight with the truth, that's when we can start to integrate those things and really understand what it means to be in right relationship to our own experience. And in the teachings of the Buddha or Buddhism or what do you want to call it, is, is one of the truths that attachment is suffering or is that too simplistic? Yes. So attachment is known as a primary cause of suffering. And 
This can also be understood as clinging or grasping. And I think where this gets misinterpreted is that people often feel like in the Buddhist tradition, desire is something that should be avoided or forming healthy attachments should be avoided. Attachment in this context is very clearly understood to be dysfunctional attachment. If you're attached to your loved one, that's not just necessary, but it's a very integral part of leading a joyful life. One could say that one has a healthy attachment to their practice, which is why they continue showing up day after day. What he was trying to say and what the tradition says is that if this thing doesn't stay the same or doesn't show up or manifest in the way that you want it to, and you expect it to be one way, that's when your attachment leads to suffering. So we suffer when we expect our partners to treat us in the perfect way all the time to be exactly how we want them. That's attachment because that's not possible. They will change. We will change. People have bad days. Life happens. So it's, it's noticing how we're in relationship to the object. If we can be in relationship to the object, if we can celebrate it, if we can be with it, if we can utilize it, fantastic. If we start to project onto it, if we start to ref- refrain from allowing it to change, if we feel like we need it to survive, if that sort of unhealthy, dysfunctional attachment arises, that's when we suffer because then we're not seeing the truth of what's happening. So I hope that clarifies it a little bit. It definitely does. It's just to summarize it back to you, and you can tell me if I'm right here, it's almost like attachment. It is suffering, but it's unhealthy attachment. And the definition of unhealthy attachment is laid out in there, which is as an example, you know, perfection or like expecting that everything will go the way it's supposed to go. I'm attached to the outcome of perfection. Um, versus I'm I'm attached to uh, doing my best to make this work. Is that an example of a healthy and unhealthy attachment? It's so in the Buddhist tradition, the way that I think attachment is also defined is a clinging onto the way that we think things should be. So this also means a way that we understand the sense of self. So anything from that lens, any kind of grasping will cause suffering. So I don't know if I would necessarily clarify being in right relationship as attachment in the way that we understand it. I think that it can get really loaded because its context in the West has, again, a very different set of assumptions that people think about when they think of the word attachment. It's, It's learning to be with things as they are. That's healthy. So if we classify that as healthy attachment, sure, that's great. If we can be with things as they change, as we change, as they grow, fantastic. Things meaning not just our relationships, but life. Where we start to suffer is when we start to cling on to things that we think should stay the same. And when we start to cling on to delusion, more importantly. So we think this is reality. We think this is the truth. We think this is the nature of the self. And we cling on to that. And like you mentioned before with the sort of reducing something down to discipline, when we cling, we immediately release the potential of any discovery. We can't investigate into the truth or something else of what's happening because we're so blinded by what we think should be happening or what we want to be happening. Mm, I think this is an important point. So I want to double down this, I guess I could say. is So is that is that a process of creating space 
would you say that you know attachment uh, is being like you said? Oh, there you go. Right, clinging to something. Attachment is clinging to something, but mm-hmm. quote unquote non-attachment is is wanting something, but not being clinged to it, not being attached to it. It's a bit of space in between. It's like I really want you know to make seven figures a year, or you know get this this really good job that I want. I really want it, but you take space and you're like okay if it doesn't happen not even a word process but we're using words so i have to kind of explain it but just a process of separating yourself from the potential of it not happening or happening and just having a barrier of or a space of of letting go i think i think that that's a we are getting closer i think that that desire is important wholesome desire is very important and actually having a strong aspiration on the spiritual path is a crucial part of, of committing to one's spiritual practice. We have to have an aspiration, otherwise we wouldn't meditate or we wouldn't do any of the things if we didn't have something that we were looking for out of these practices. I think that one thing that is important to keep in mind is that if things don't go the way they go, I will be okay. It's this understanding that what I'm experiencing now or the way that I'm experiencing this right now doesn't have to be contingent on what is happening. Freedom from outcome. Right. So I, exactly. I can be in a state of harmony despite the amount of money that I make. And now this gate, this gets really, really complex when we start to apply it to A, the modern world, but B, we take it out of its religious and spiritual context in which the Buddhist tradition was very much rooted. And we have to remember that when we start to say, well, what about people who are struggling to, to eat? What about people who can't practice because they have to work three jobs and take care of their children and they don't have time to meditate? They, or what about people who are in danger? Sort of closing their eyes and lying down for 20 minutes is just not a possibility. So this is where it starts to get more complex. And this is where the conversation around Dharma, uh, Dharma, the Buddhist teachings today is really important because we're starting to really have more of these modern and social and political conversations in the lens and through the lens and in the context of the Buddhist teachings. And as practitioners across the world today, we're trying to make sense of how we can apply this while taking into account all the complexity of what it means to be human. So how do we apply attachment or how do we apply something like compassion to racial trauma in this country? How do we do that to people who are causing harm intentionally you know how, how can we practice non-attachment if we're experiencing death of loved ones because of the color of their skin right these are the conversations that we're starting to have with what is the utility of these teachings in the climate that we're in today because it's no longer reduced to a series of monks in the mountains these are people living across the globe struggling with very different problems trying to utilize the same teachings so there has to be an adaptive process that is both dynamic and wise so that the teachings are sustained, but that they're also catered to the, to the context of the modern world today because life is very different. Life was very different for Buddhists 2,500 years ago, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago. So I think that we have to keep that in mind as we're continuing to understand what is it that the Buddha meant and how do we apply that today? So just like we mentioned earlier, we're at a point of discovery. 
that there are so many opinions as to what it means to be Buddhist. So many traditional Buddhists criticize Westerners who have, who have translated their own practice into that, who have adopted this new religion. So many scientists have taken it as a way and claimed it to be a mind science, not a religion, which is just not true. It's very much a religion. So I think that it's always helpful to keep in mind that as we're integrating these teachings into the modern context today, a lot of these teachings of attachment and of what it means to suffer and what it means to be compassionate are starting to be viewed through a fresh lens. And how does that look um, using, I guess, racial inequality and topics like that? You can use a different example if it's too contentious. But how does compassion look in that sense if you're applying the the Buddhist philosophies? So something that uh, a teacher that I really respect says, his name is Lama Rod Owens. Um, he's a fantastic teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition which blew my mind when I first heard it. And he said that compassion is not tolerance. To have compassion for you doesn't mean I have to tolerate anything that you do. And compassion doesn't even entail a direct relationship with, I don't have to speak to you or like you or want to have anything to do with you to have compassion for you. Compassion is a spontaneous impulse to seeing the truth of what's happening. So to see, oh, this person is in tremendous mental pain. Nobody who isn't suffering can inflict suffering. No peaceful person responds in the ways that suffering people do. Anytime somebody reacts, anytime someone says a remark, anytime somebody causes harm or inflicts suffering, they're in a state of suffering themselves, whether it's fear or anxiety or loneliness, or even if we start to bring in the clinical diagnoses, whether they are having an experience of depression or bipolar, or there's something going on that has caused this individual to believe, to truly believe that what they're doing is the appropriate thing to do. So you can see that and you can see, wow, what a painful place to be in, to have so much hate in your heart and to have so much lack of control and compassion in your own actions so that you're at the whims of your own reactions. That's not a good place to be. So I can have compassion with that while still holding you responsible, while still fighting against that, wishing for you to be held responsible and people like you who act this way to be held responsible and choosing to create safe spaces for those who maybe are on the receiving end to feel safe and to feel like they can really regulate and integrate and speak about these experiences without the threat of somebody overshadowing that or putting them in harm. So racial trauma, I think, is a really fertile ground for Buddhist teachings, especially in America today. It's really interesting to see how these teachings are being taught. And one thing, like I mentioned, we have to keep in mind, this wasn't really discussed. This is never discussed in the original context of Buddhist practice. I mean, the discrimination between women weren't even discussed and wasn't even important. So we have to recognize that yes, the Buddha said that compassion is important. And yes, these traditions emphasize interconnectedness and respect. But let's look at the reality of what it was like in India at that time when this was being practiced, which was that a lot of women weren't allowed to practice this. So I think that we have to keep in mind the difference between the religious and spiritual prescription, what things should be, and the reality of what they are. Wow. 
that's powerful. And and speaking into, and I just really want to, you know, for myself as well, and those for, those who are listening, you know, compassion isn't the act of, you know, having to be in communication with someone and, and tolerating them and, you know, all the things you said there. So give me just a moment to think about that because it's, I think that's a really important point and it's, it's not quite hitting for me yet and I want to really understand it. So, you know, traditionally when you think about compassion, at least the way I think about compassion is that you, uh, if someone does something, you know, that's, that, that makes you feel, and let's do it interpersonally, right? So you have a family member, you have a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother, and they have expectations of you in their mind as, you know, as a family member. And they think if they do something to you that they expect a certain response and you, you show, Hey, I'm not okay with that. I know that you expect that, but that's not what I want to be. That's not, that's not how I want to show up. Right. If they say, well, I need you. I need you to do like I, I'm going through a hard time. I need this. Well, I have the space right now. This is just an example, right? How would compassion look like in that situation there? So you're not tolerating them, you know, not saying like if they're, you know, taking up your space and your time and you're not there you don't you can't you don't have the capacity to do it how would compassion look like under that context just to run the idea of compassion home if if we could yeah i think compassion is one of those things that has been understood in so many different ways and i think this context that you bring up now is very different from the context of racial trauma sure sure but in the context of what's going on now i think it's really helpful to recognize the good intention of the other person and say, wow, thank you for being so invested in my well-being and, and what it is that you think I should do to make sure that I am safe and I'm financially secure and I'm doing X, Y, Z. Because oftentimes when we do have that family member who's very much invested in what it is that we're doing, it really is coming from a good place. It's coming from a place of protection or a place of wanting to prevent anything bad from happening or wanting to repair their own mistake that they might have made in their past and not wanting you to do the same thing. So it's always helpful to, to see that first. I think that can also help the person on the receiving end who is um, the, the family member who is being spoken to like this and doesn't want to participate, so the individual in a sense, to soften into that, recognize the goodwill of the other person and set healthy boundaries. What compassion is, it's a willingness to not perpetuate the suffering. So you don't meet that person in the way that they're meeting you. It's not, you don't fight fire with fire. That's a huge essence of compassion. If somebody's overstepping your boundaries, you don't respond by overstepping their boundaries. You respond by standing firm in yours, knowing your own power and meeting them with that and saying, I'm not going to tolerate this. Thank you for your investment. I see that you really want me to do this. I see that you really care, but I'm good. I've got it. Should I need your advice? I'll call you. And and it's not always so simple that the family member is like, fantastic, call me. You know, oftentimes we'll get pushback and that's okay. But then we start to get into the conversation of boundaries. But compassion for others is not possible without compassion for yourself. Compassion for self means treating yourself with the utmost dignity and respect. If we haven't mastered that, it will feel hard to do for other people and it will feel hard to set those boundaries when other people are mistreating our our own needs and our own boundaries. So self-compassion is correlational to compassion for others. So oftentimes if people are noticing 
an inability to be soft with other people or to be with the pain of other people, a good question is, how am I doing that to myself? How am I neglecting my own pain? How am I not softening into my own experience? Because if I can't do it with myself, how can I do it with other people? And then it's reciprocal. The more I do it with other people, then the easier it becomes to do it with myself. It's a cyclical process of, it's a relational quality. So it's complex because in any given moment, like anything, I think inherently spiritual, it's dynamic. There's no right way to do anything. There's no one way to do it. So the way that compassion is often understood to be, and the Latin translation of its root is to suffer with. So if you're noticing somebody in pain, to be compassionate is to suffer with them in their pain, is to hold that pain with them. Is to say, I see that. I feel what you feel and I'm sorry. And to sit there in that moment with them. And sometimes that means that you're separate. If you're going through an unhealthy breakup, you can have compassion. You can say, I, I really feel your pain. I, I respect it. I feel it. I'm here with it. But for my own safety, my own health, I can't be in relationship with you. I can't interact with you. So compassion is a sentimental attitude and wholesome state of mind. It's not they're always translated into concrete behavior, but rather it's a state of mind, which then influences everything you do from that place. Yeah, that's and that's something that I'm I'm looking at in my own life at the moment. And just to make it a bit you know personal, it's like I I see it, I get it, I, I know the suffering that people go through, but it's kind of like a, um, there's just a fly buzzing around me then. <laughs> I know the, I see the suffering and I, you know, I can feel it. I feel it in my myself. Like I, like I see someone in that situation that's going through stuff that I've been through myself before. It's like, I get how that feels. But as soon as kind of someone will start to overstep and, and in a way what feels to me like, try to use me as a, as a crutch or like as a, as someone they, they need to lean on. Um, it just, it makes me feel, uh, like I just want to distance myself. You know, there could be various reasons for that, like a attachment style and you can go in the science of it all and everything. But you know, that's, that's why I was asking about compassion and wanting to go into it further. Cause it's just like, and I feel a lot of people have this as well. This word boundary is just, it's put out there and it's, I'm glad it has awareness but it also feels a bit, you know, like cloudy. It's like, you know, what does that actually mean? It's like, we got to say no. It's like, well, and I get it. You know, everything has a context and it's kind of dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I get that's what compassion is. It's just sometimes it's so tough to, you know, when you get someone's pain and suffering, but then they can't handle their own stuff. And then they try and use you as a crutch and you're like, I feel bad. So then you, you crumble and you're like, okay, you know what, I'll do the thing that you you need me to do so you feel okay. And then you you feel even worse because you've compromised on your, like you said, self-compassion. And then like you can't even have the conversation because you feel like even being around that person just makes you feel funny, right? It goes on and on. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's so tough to have compassion. Um, but I but I see where where I might be going wrong, where other people might be going wrong as well, which is, not sticking up for yourself, not having compassion for yourself. It starts within then goes without, right? When we take supreme care of our minds and bodies, only then can we truly show up for other people. And 
it's important to also mention that compassion is not people pleasing, which it's often understood to be that. It's to be the one that can always be reliable, the one that is always there. Compassion is a genuine expression of care. It's a very tender, honest approach to whatever it is that's happening. Your own experience, the moment someone else's experience. So if you don't have the capacity to hold someone's experience, the compassionate thing to do is say just that. I see you. I hear you. I need to take care of myself. When I have the resources, I'll be right there. I want to be there. But right now, I can't. This is calling my attention and I have to take care of myself. We don't live in a culture where that is encouraged or celebrated. So it'll take a while until that happens. And we might even notice now our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, there's no such thing. You know, having a conversation with my mom about boundaries, there's no such thing. And bless her, she's become excellent about this. I would always work at my laptop during COVID. And she would just come and speak to me. And I was like, mom, not right now. And then I always felt bad because then she would internalize that as I'm ignoring her, I'm neglecting her. And I'm like, no, mom, I'm just, I really don't have the space to be present with you. So if you, just for the benefit of this relationship, in order for you to also feel seen, let's set a time so that whenever that time arises, I can make sure that I've done what I need to do to take care of myself so that I can be there for you. And now it, it, she's, bless her, she's amazing. Now, if she wants to say something, like she'll knock on the door and she's like, no, okay. And then she'll just walk out. Like she won't even, there's no expectation that I'm available anymore. But that was radical for her as a woman growing up in, you know, in the, in the mid 20th century where that's not a thing. No one taught her to have boundaries. So I also think that on the topic of boundaries, you'll notice that the people who struggle to respect your boundaries the most are the people who struggle to have their own boundaries. Yeah, and to extend on that as well, you know, like if we, it takes awareness to understand the consequences of not having boundaries, you know, and this is what I'm learning now as well. It's like, it's like, sure, you know, it's, it's much easier to cave in when someone is requesting something from you that you can't give, it's much easier at that time. It's like, look, I'll just do it and I'll brush it off later on, you know, but then for some people, it's like two days later, you're like resentment, you know, sometimes it's six months later. Sometimes it's like 20 years later, you know, I've even heard of people who, especially, you know, people from Asia having family culture that their parents expect them to have a certain career and, you know, they do that career and then 20 years later, they have an absolute meltdown or, you know, even this is kind of a extension of that, but maybe when they get cancer, which is like a physical symptom of something they're not releasing. Um, and there's probably various reasons for that. It's just an example. So, and, and this is what I'm learning now. It's like when I don't say no, or when anyone doesn't say no, even for the receiving end, you know, that doesn't help anyone. <laughs> and you have to think long-term, like, you know, a week later when like you snap at them and you say something you shouldn't have said, they're feeling bad, you feel bad for being bad, but that could have all been avoided by just, like you said, gentle compassion, gentle boundaries. And that's a very specific, like not boundaries in, no, I'm not doing this because that's anger, right? But like, hey, like I understand where you're coming from, but I can't be there for you right now. This is what's going on for me. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think this, this shows up so beautifully in partnership all the time when you're in a romantic relationship because- Shows up the most there. Bet- 
Right. Who best to expect to be there for you than your partner? When they say no, it's like hell that's breaking loose. So it's it's a really good practice to acknowledge. Like this is the most compassionate thing that I can do for you. Boundaries are inherently freeing because they allow you to be in sincere relationship with what your actual experience is. And then you invite the other person to do the same. They invite both parties to take responsibility for their own experiences. And that is one of the kindest and most elevating things that we can do for one another is to say, I care about you enough that I'm going to be honest with you, that I don't want this to impact our relationship in time to come. I don't want to harbor resentment against you. I want this to be a wholesome relationship. So that means I have to tell you the truth, even if it's not pleasant. And with boundaries, I also think it's really important as we are setting these boundaries to offer the other person tremendous forgiveness, you know, because if you're in relationship with someone and then you start to set boundaries, so this person has already known you in a very different way, we have to give them time to adapt to this. You know, for instance, like in the context of my mom, this wasn't familiar to her. She was like, well, you're just available when I want you to be. And it's like, well, that's not going to be how it is moving forward. So there has to be a grace period of, you know, both parties making mistakes, maybe not being so open hearted, and then both evolving together with the intention to support one another. So I think as long as that is felt, hey, I really want to help you. It's important for me that that's here. And this is in the context, of course, of, of intimate relationships with friends, family, lovers. With, with someone that's caused you pain, you don't necessarily need to go into details. You can say, I see you, I hear you, but no. And th that's where it becomes dynamic. It's not going to sound and look the same in every situation. But if it's coming from the intention to serve both people, that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly put. Um, you know, that's compassion is a, a process. And um, if you don't do it and you don't have boundaries for yourself, which is an extension of self-compassion, then it will come up in the end. So I think that's that's huge. How are you for time? Are you okay to go for a bit longer or do you have to wrap yeah, up? Yeah, no, no, let's go for a little bit longer. Sorry, you cut off there. What was that? We can go for a little bit longer. Okay, okay, awesome. So I wanted to understand, um, just kind of jump to something different. You know, I read your bio, and you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you had a a very spiritual background. You were growing up in, or you grew up in, part of your life in India. Is that right? In in England, but I had, uh, but my family's from India originally. My apologies. Okay, so you you have a, a your and your family had a spiritual background, and then you started to study the the science of mindfulness. Is that right? Maybe tell me what you, what you did. <laughs> you can go through. It. Um, yes, no, my, my background is definitely, um, my, my bio, sorry, is it's a much more condensed version of things. So I can, that's, that makes total sense why you would think what you think. Um, but yes, I did study, uh, science of meditation and I was born and raised in a Sikh household, which is from a religion from Northwest India. So, um, I'm Punjabi. That's where my family is originally from, it, um, so I grew up in England and I grew up in a very religious household and my parents, I feel very lucky, have always been very religious and spiritually inclined and 
have always valued those modes of knowing. Um, so when I began to study Buddhism, they were very much interested and, and curious as to what it is that I was doing. But the reason that I the reason that I resonated with the Buddhist tradition is because what I was understanding from the Sikh tradition felt misaligned with what my experience was. And I do feel more closely connected to my Sikh tradition now, but I needed to have that departure to really understand it in my own way and not the way that my dad understood it. So I had to have my own sort of departure and, and reconnection with it. But anywhere I went, there was always this emphasis on God. Just pray, just pray, just pray. And okay, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, and nothing's changing in my life. You know, it's like, okay, well, what's, what is actually supposed to do? And there's no, um, I have no, like nothing against prayer. I, prayer is very close to my heart, but at that time in my life, I was in a lot of pain and it, it just wasn't working. So I was doing more studying and exploring and traveling and, as I was diving deep into Buddhism and I, I heard this first teaching, which is that life is suffering. The way that you perceive life is suffering. I'm like, yes, that someone just named it because I'm not hearing this anywhere else. Everyone keeps telling me that to pray and everything will be bliss. And this is just not the fucking truth of what I'm experiencing. I can't, <laughs> I, I can't get this bliss that everyone speaks of. And the Buddhist tradition emphasized life is suffering. And if you keep doing this, you'll just suffer. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And there's a way out of it. And I was like, great, give me a path. Give me, I will do the thing. And every time from that point to now that I have, every time that I have applied these teachings, even in small, subtle ways, I have suffered less. And that is why I continued to practice. And that is why I dove deeper because I was like, huh, there is something about the way that I'm in relationship to my mind and my experience that will either lead me to feel more peace or will only help me and lead me to perpetuate my suffering. So what is it that I want? And what drew me to Tibetan Buddhist practice is the inherent emphasis on your own power. It's you. You are the cause of your suffering, which means that you are the solution to your suffering. This, of course, gets more complex with systems in life, and I, I don't want to discount that. But the essence of the practice is it's in your mind. It's not inherent in your partner. It's not inherent in your parents. It's not inherent in the world. It's in your mind, the root of your suffering. It's the way that you're perceiving it. It doesn't mean that all those things can't cause grave harm that you can't be in bad relationships or experience pain from other people, but it means that the root of it is in your harm, is in your mind. So from there on, I just, I became really, I felt really safe in the tradition. I felt like, oh, I can, I can just breathe for a little bit. Like now I really feel seen. And mm. since then I've just been studying and practicing and every teacher that I came across at that time that I really resonated with were all in the Tibetan lineage. And I was like, huh, there's something about this particular school of Buddhism that I feel really drawn to. I don't know what it is. And even to this day, I can explain maybe some things about it that really draw me. It feels somewhat comic, you know, if that's 
that's what I believe anyway. It feels like there, there's some other lifetime where this has influenced why I'm here today and why I'm drawn to this lineage. It feels very synchronistic. I, I feel like it's such a gift, you know, at, at, a, at a young age to have come across something that feels so solid. Um, it feels really rare to some degree. And funnily enough, it actually helped me feel more connected to my Sikh tradition. So I'm, um, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting journey, is a very interesting journey. And can you imagine if you, you know, the, the advice, you probably did this anyway, you know, with your Sikh tradition, that's how you say it, right? Mm-hmm. If you were, you thought to yourself, just be more disciplined, just keep going, keep doing this, keep doing this, right? There was something going on for you and you, you know, you obviously, and now you said you're more connected to that tradition in some ways, you know, that comes from a process of reevaluating and using the feelings you have inside, which shouldn't be so disregarded. And I think that's a, a product of science in a way. It's like, if it's not tangible and outside of us, then that feeling has no relevance or holds no relevance, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's a, a huge thing to, to hone, to bring home the point of not just pushing yourself to do something because it's what you have to do, and but rather stepping back and, and reevaluating. Yeah, it's the hero's journey. It's it's really allowing yourself to to depart from what you know, to be willing to sacrifice it all for for some for some understanding of truth, and to then arrive back home with so much more clarity and so much more appreciation. And what that really symbolizes is that the content didn't change. You know, my the tradition didn't change, but my perspective changed my relationship to it changed. So that's really the essence of the teaching that I like to do and my own healing path with my teachers that I practice with is that it's that it's it's in the way that I'm relating to it. That's the key. It's not the thing itself. And if I can rest in that power, because it's power, it means that I get to choose the kind of world that I inhabit to some degree, then then that's that's a really enlightening space to be in enlightening in a very light word <laughs> of course in a very light way of course <laughs> yeah and, and speaking about enlightenment and just touching on that again you know each kind of for lack of better words religion or practice has a different you know end goal you know you might say enlightenment you could say the hero's journey one of uh carl you know are you familiar with carl jung yeah he talks about the end goal is individuation right and one of the things that he practices is shadow work and integrating your shadow side um the question i have is do you think that you know with your your the philosophy of buddhism and and what you've studied and what you've learned do you think that we have a shadow side and do you think that needs to be integrated and can you integrate it if you think it needs to be integrated through the uh, buddhist philosophies or way of being yes yes and yes <laughs> We definitely have a shadow side. Mm-hmm. I think we definitely ought to integrate it. And I think Buddhist practice can be tremendously useful in helping us do that. There are so many ways of understanding the shadow, but it's anything that is fragmented, anything that has been rejected, anything that is just unknown. Um, or there's an unwilling, there's a, a lack of a willingness to know it out of fear, out of protection, out of whatever. And the ability 
the ability to experience, I think, sustainable happiness can only come from that integrated place. And there's a quote that I read in a Carl Jung book years ago, which I, I don't I don't think he said this. I think he was quoting someone else in the book, and I don't remember who he was quoting, but he said, darkness itself, the darkness itself calls forth the helpful light. So it's only in that space of integrating the shadow that you can actually experience that kind of bliss. It doesn't exist elsewhere. It's in that place of integration. So going back to the spiritual bypassing, those people who think that suffering or those emotional states are not enlightened, it's actually the very opposite. Yeah, and Carl Jung also says that in order for your branches to reach high up to the heavens, your roots need to reach deep into hell. And, you know, you can interpret that how you want. But for me, that means, uh, you know, you go through the dark times, you go through the hell-like, you know, as a metaphor, the hell-like situations, you know, the breakups, the anxiety, the suffering that, you know, we each individually have in our own unique way. And when you do that, it deepens your resolve. And like a, a, a tree's roots that go deep into the ground, it's less likely to be swayed by the winds, you know, and... And to reach up higher, you know, there's, it's a, a double analogy, right? Um, so I, I think that, you know, in, or, in order for you to, to step into something beautiful, there needs to be the contrast of that, which, again, is a, a Buddhist philosophy, you know, the, or maybe it's not, maybe I'm incorrect here, but the yin and the yang, right? You know, the white and the black and the black and the white, and that it's dualistic. And that's what the shadow side is as well. It's the darkness and the light and the two parts that lean on each other like a, a house of cards and how you need one and the other at the same time. Yeah, precisely. That's awesome. So I've got a few rapid fire questions and we'll wrap up. Um, okay. The very first one is what do you think the, the biggest problem is that we're facing in the world as a whole at the moment? And B, what do you feel the solution is? You know, it could be, uh, you know, it could be education for uh, more women in in uh, poorer countries. It could be, you know, a, a policy. It could be anything you want. The first thing that comes to mind is that we're afraid of ourselves. And because of that, we're afraid of other people. It's fear. And what's the best way to, to work through fear? Compassionate investigation. And that would look <laughs> like a meditation? It has, anyway, it has to be tender, it has to be gradual, but it has to be sincere. It has to be really confrontational. I think this can be courageous dialogue. I think this can be activism work that requires really brave participation. I think this can be uncomfortable introspection. I think it's likely a multitude of those things, but I think it's recognizing that the way that we fear ourselves is a way that we fear other people and the way that we fear other people is a way that we fear ourselves. It all starts and ends in community. There's nothing that happens individually. So if we can start to recognize interdependence and, and align with that and realize like our responsibility for taking care of ourselves and our responsibility for taking care of other people, doing so in a compassionate way, then we can start to really understand what it means to heal properly. Yeah, like Stephen Covey talks about, you have uh, dependence then independence, then interdependence. Um, I feel there's a distinction though with that and, it, and it's that I don't feel like we should go out and try to change the world until we have our own kind of constitution in order. 
you know, I, I see it, I see it a lot. People trying to to change a political system or you know whatever. And it's good that they're trying, but they don't have their own stuff in order. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is their their ideas and their approaches aren't founded in reality. I think I think the most beautiful pathway, and maybe this is idealistic, is for it to happen simultaneously. As we heal ourselves, we heal others, and as we heal others, we heal ourselves. Mm. Then the, the counter principle to that is hurt people hurt people, and you know that a, a principle founded in a, a you know a righteous arrangement in the sense that you're going to find like I have a certain ideology that I'm going to do a political change in that in a community can end up in more pain and suffering. You know, like there's there's been and I'm not saying that you're saying this at all, but there's been people in history who have thought they've done the right thing and have ended up causing massive destruction. Mm. So I'd, I'd like to think that the approach, um, and I could be wrong here, the approach is rather to, you know, get your own life in order first before you step into the world and try to, to move everything around, so to speak. This has been such a pleasure. Likewise. One last question, if, if you have time. Um, it's a short one. Um, if we were, if you could leave behind a metaphorical toolbox right and it can have anything you want in there it could have uh, you know a, a dvd or you know a, a laptop with some information on it or a book or whatever what would you leave behind in it in the world in this conversation or well whatever you want to it could be in this conversation in the words you use it could be uh you know a literal box of things in there you know just the idea is to kind of get a feeling for what's most important for you to leave behind Hmm. i I would leave a poem Mm -hmm. i I would leave a book of poetry um i think that one thing that i don't think will change and hasn't changed is that art is the easiest way to communicate most deeply with anybody, whether it's music, whether it's visually, whether it's embodied practice. I think art is the way to really communicate with the depths of any single human. So I think I would leave a book of poetry. That is exactly the same thing I would say. Not poetry, but, uh, you know, for me, that, that yeah, being very left-brained, you know, something that's, uh, you know, wiggly in the sense is is beautiful to leave behind, in my opinion, as well. Mm. What a lovely question. Thank you. And thank you for joining. And, yeah, is there anything you would like to, to say in any note? Is a, Would you like to mention where people can find you? I'll put your details in the show notes and everything as well. But if you would like to have any final thoughts, you're more than welcome to. Uh, Yeah, if anybody has any questions or would like to chat more, feel free to message me either through my website, you can email me, or if Instagram is more comfortable, feel free to reach out there, but always happy to chat. So let me know if anything sparks your interest from this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, beautiful people, for listening to another episode of the Getting Mental Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, follow, and share it with your friends and family. If you would like to see more of the Getting Mental Podcast, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or on every social media platform. You can find us at Getting Mental Podcast. Until next time.